The late missiologist and Presbyterian missionary, Ralph Winner, once said, America today is a save-yourself society if there ever was one. But does it really work? The underdeveloped societies suffer from one set of diseases, tuberculosis, malnutrition, pneumonia, parasites, typhoid, cholera, typhus, etc. Affluent America has virtually invented a whole new set of diseases, obesity, arteriosclerosis, heart disease, strokes, lung cancer, venereal disease, cirrhosis of the liver, drug addiction, alcoholism, divorce, battered children, suicide, murder, take your choice. Labor-saving machines have turned out to be body-killing devices. Our affluence has allowed both mobility and isolation of the nuclear family. And as a result, our divorce courts, our prisons, and our mental institutions are flooded. In saving ourselves, we have nearly lost ourselves. Mr. Winter said that back in 1981. And I think we could safely say that much is still the same for many people living in America today in 2023. In saving ourselves, we have nearly lost ourselves. So if you're here today and you're new to Christianity, or maybe you're not sure on whether or not you are a Christian, we want you to leave this worship gathering today not confused, but clear in your understanding of who the Savior is. You see, as Christians, we believe trying to save ourselves in any way that replaces God and his grace is ultimately futile. And if we think we can make ourselves right with God by our own merits or our attempts of doing what's right in our own eyes, it eventually leads to spiritual suicide and ultimately eternal damnation. Thus, any poverty or affluency we may or may not experience in this life should drive each one of us to a deeper dependence on God who sovereignly rules over our lots in life. So whether we are rich or poor, sick or healthy, well-known or unknown, while we have our breath, we all should grow in a deeper, self-conscious reliance upon our maker for our daily bread. And we should likewise grow in a deeper measure of humble gratitude to our maker, a gratitude that increases throughout our lives as we recognize ourselves as being undeserving recipients of all his kind and generous gifts. So instead of trying to save ourselves or simply just try to prolong life on earth, we can't do that at the neglect of our souls. Instead of trying to make our lives as problem-free and pain-free and responsibility-free as possible, friends, we need to be reminded how brief our time on earth is. We need to be reminded how long eternity is before each one of us. And friends, that's why our ultimate hope cannot be found in things like affluency or human ingenuity 
or random luck or the roll of the dice are fallible human predictions about the future. No, our hope is found in someone who really came to this earth and who really came to save us from ourselves, to actually and effectually save us from our sinful selves, which we deserve only the righteous wrath of God. He came to save us from ourselves and to give us the abundant life in him while we live in this fallen world. He came to give us eternal life with him forever and to live with our God in the new heavens and new earth. God's son came to this earth as the greatest gift God has ever bestowed to fallen, wretched sinners like us. And friends, we believe that the only, underscore, circle, bold line, only, true, sure, steady, and satisfying Savior is found by trusting in the birth, life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and promised return of Jesus Christ. And we believe that Jesus is not a Christ or one of many good options on the menus of saviors. Friends, he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and by believing in him, we have life in his name. By turning from our sins and trusting in him, we as sinners who only deserve God's judgment, can be adopted into God's family forever. Friends, let's just be really clear this morning. You've taken time out of your day to be a part of this long service in a nicely more air-conditioned building than normal. Jesus is our king. Jesus is our life. Jesus is our hope, and Jesus is our help in our times of trial. He is our boast. He is our reason for living. He is the hope of all the ends of the earth. That's why we as Christians can't keep the gospel to ourselves. It is so good. It is so good news that we must tell it to others. We really believe in this real person named Jesus, and we believe he lived, he died, he rose again, and that he's coming back. Friends, we want as many people that we meet in this life to hear that good news before it's too late. You see, you and I don't have very long on our time on earth, and we already know the longer you live this life, life is full of pain, uncertainty, natural disasters, bad news, and trouble. And if we make ourselves think If we delude ourselves into thinking that money, modern medicine, or the freedom we have to move and live wherever we want can ultimately save ourselves or control our own destiny, friends, we're going to be in for a rude awakening. You see, there is coming a day appointed by God that every human being, regardless of what country we are from, how much money we do or don't have, or whatever our current health condition is, there is coming a day that every person will discover how frail and how futile these earthly comforts are when we stand before our glorious and beautiful and matchless king. Friends, there is coming a day that every human being in this room in this town, in this country, and around the world who have ever lived will give an account before their maker. One day, heaven and earth 
will pass away. And everything Jesus ever taught will be vindicated is true. So brothers and sisters, are you eagerly longing for that day? How would Jesus instruct us on how to live our lives in light of the end? As followers of the world's only Savior, what will be required of us to endure to the end? Friends, out of all the books we read, out of all the news articles we pay attention to, at the end of my life and your life, whose words, whose warnings, whose promises will we have held on to in order to finish the race and keep the faith? If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, if you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 495 and 496. And if you don't have a Bible at home you can read, you can take that Bible and the chair back as a gift from our church to you. Mark 13. In Mark's Gospel, we come now to that pivotal hinge point in the teaching ministry of Jesus. In Mark 11, he and his disciples entered into Jerusalem as well as into the temple courts as Jesus would make his presence known in the most prominent city of the Jewish people. Then in Mark chapter 12, we witness Jesus respond with perfect precision to the sinister questions and deceitful traps that were laid out against him from the Jewish Sanhedrin. And then last week, we witnessed Jesus expose the vain pretense of the scribes, and he called the crowds and and really the disciples to beware of their narcissism and religious pride. This morning, we turn to Mark 13, where we see the longest teaching block of Jesus's ministry in the gospel of Mark. Please follow with me. Mark 13, starting in verse 1. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he! And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you were to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. 
For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father is child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my namesake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels and gathers elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is God's word. Now, as your pastor and fellow brother in Christ, to be honest with you at the outset, Mark 13 is not the easiest passage to grasp in the gospel of Mark. At least, it isn't for me. If you read commentaries and other scholarly books, not only will you have gray hair and age, you will find out that there are a range of perspectives on a whole, list, a whole list of issues that come up in this section of God's Word. But I think if we read the passage carefully, keeping the big picture in mind, I do believe we can walk away from it with confidence on how to respond to it. This chapter is also known as the Olivet Discourse because it takes place primarily with Jesus teaching his disciples as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. That's there in verse 3. If you want to read further, 
and compare the synoptics of the Olivet Discourse, some of the similarities, some of the differences that really complement each other is Matthew chapter 24 and Luke chapter 21. The challenges in interpreting this passage touch on a whole host of topics. If you are curious and you just have an inkling of interest, they would be the following. Topics related to certain prophecies being fulfilled and their timing, as well as the significance of the Jewish war of AD 66 to AD 70 when Rome ransacked Jerusalem and the temple, all the way to the mentioning of the mysterious abomination of desolation, standing where he ought not to be. Verse 14, and I I love the comic relief here. Look at verse 14, the editorial comment. Let the reader understand. Yep, I'm still trying to. To the description of cataclysmic proportions of the moon not giving its light and stars falling from heaven with the coming of the Son of Man on the clouds with great power and glory in verses 24 to 27. And then, of course, that really difficult Christological question there in verse 32, Jesus refers to himself as the Son, speaking of the Son of God, Son of God the Father, and we're told that he doesn't know the day or hour of his second coming and final judgment. So taking all these things together, it's a difficult passage. So this morning, I'm going to give my best attempt to explain the overall shape and scope of this chapter. And if you still have lingering questions about the passage after the sermon, I trust God will give us all more clarity as we continue to study his word and remain humbled by what we don't understand yet. So to begin, let me try to summarize what I think each section is pointing to, and then we'll dive into some application at the end that we can derive from this text. In verses 1 to 4, Jesus directly informs his disciples that this beautiful, magnificent temple, this grandiose architecture that had oohed and awed their eyes, would one day be in shambles. He says there in verse 2, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now remember, this is the same temple that Jesus just spent hours in debating, combating his opponents, refuting and exposing the Jewish Sanhedrin as religious frauds. This is the same temple that was filled with all sorts of attitudes and actions that Jesus said corrupted the very house of God. As you may recall, the temple is the place where Jesus overturned the tables. And he drove out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And do you remember that that harsh and sharp rebuke uh, Jesus gave those who were gathered in the temple? Look back in Mark 11, verse 17. Mark 11, 17. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And we know that Jesus continues this this really stern rebuke towards the religious leaders, even all the way back to Mark 11, verses 12 and 14, or 12 to 14, in Mark 11, 20 to 21, with the parable of the cursed fig tree. Jesus takes a literal fig tree right before their eyes, pronounces a curse on it, it withers, bears no fruit in season, and he says, young men, this is a depiction of what's coming upon the faithless and fruitless Jewish people who have not bore fruit for God. 
And friends, that's why in Mark 12, earlier in Mark 12, if you want to glance down, Mark 12, 1 to 12, we studied how that parable of the tenants was another graphic display of how heartless and hateful these leaders were that really ran the show in the temple, the house of God. And it says that these men, the ones that Jesus looked at right into their eyes, he told them that they were these wicked tenants. And they would be the ones who would eventually arrest him, kick him out, and kill him. And that one day Jesus would be vindicated as the cornerstone of the true temple of God. So in the first few verses of Mark chapter 13, after we've been listening to and watching Jesus go toe-to-toe and reveal the rank hypocrisy amongst those who represented God's people in the temple, they're on the edge of their seats. They're eager, they're earnest to know, whoa, 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 Jesus, this beautiful, magnificent, grandiose, amazing building, you said it's going to be taken down? It's going to be put in shambles? It's going to be deduced down to basically a dumpster fire? They really want to know, and they want to know when this destruction is going to happen. But then in verse 5, Jesus answers their question, possibly in a way that we wouldn't expect at first. And he seems to kind of bookend his answer in really verse 5 all the way to probably the next 20 verses or so. Look at verses 5 and 6. Jesus says this, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. They will lead many astray. Jesus warns his disciples here, of teachers and prophets who falsely identify themselves as the Christ, as a Savior, or you could even say a prophet of God. And we see Jesus reiterate this same warning in verses 21 and 22. So look down with me there. 21 and 22, Jesus said, if, And then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And then Jesus moves on from warning them about false messiahs and false preachers of his word to physical sufferings that would occur all around them. Really, it's the groanings of a fallen creation cursed by sin. You'll notice there in verses 7 and 8, he mentions things like wars and rumors of wars nations and kingdoms rising up against one another. And then he even mentions things like earthquakes occurring in various places and also famines. And then if you notice there in verse 8, Jesus says all these things, the things he just got done talking about, are but the beginning of the birth pains. In other words, when the disciples face these temptations to listen to false teachers And when they're hearing about the rumblings of kingdoms and natural disasters, Jesus says, don't be alarmed. Don't live in paranoia. In other words, don't read the tabloids. Listen to me. (laughs) Don't be caught off guard. These are to be expected, young men, like birth pains of a pregnant woman. They begin, but you don't know when the baby is going to be born. This labor could be really long. Even there it says in verse 7, do not be alarmed. Don't be freaking out. 
Don't be irrational and constantly afraid. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Jesus then goes on and explains how fierce persecution will take place and hit his followers from every conceivable angle. Look at there in verse 9, he, he mentions them being delivered over to councils. That word delivered over can mean surrendered over. In other words, someone betrays them. Sounds like something will happen to Jesus pretty soon in the next few chapters. These dear disciples will be handed over and put on trial before political and religious courts. Then again in verse 9, Jesus speaks about even religious gatherings turning on his disciples. The synagogue, the place where God is to be worshipped, the scriptures are to be read. There would even be those who would be more led by Satan in the synagogue more than by Jesus. He says even in the synagogues they would be delivered over and persecuted. And then he even goes on, kings and governors, etc. But then if you think that the persecution for being a Christian would just stop there. You know, somewhere out there in the, in the hostile, you know, world of other religions and people who despise Christianity. No, Jesus forewarns them of something he said all throughout the Gospels. If you follow me, you're going to be put in God's family. That means in one sense, you gain an eternal family. The people of God is your brothers and sisters. But in following me and being put in my family means there's going to be a divide and a rub even amongst unbelieving biological family. In other words, in order to be my disciple, you must love me more than your mom and dad, more than your brother and sister, more than your mother-in-law and your father-in-law, more than even your own life. And that's why he warns there in verse 13, and brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And then more broadly, Jesus says, hey, just when you think it's not going to get bad, it gets even worse. He says the godless world at large will also show hatred towards you. Look there in verse 13, you will be hated by all for my namesake. In this passage, remember, Jesus is saying all this in answer to their question. They asked a question, what will be the sign and the timing of when the destruction of the temple would take place? And notice how Jesus answers it. He says, at least so far, by warning them of the cost it will require of them to be his disciples. He basically says this, if you want to be my disciple, it will cost you at some point your freedom. It will cost you peace in your family. It will cost even some of you your very life. But then we get to verse 14, and then Jesus talks about this mysterious and ominous description of the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. Now, if there is any text that is most difficult to interpret in this chapter, it is this verse. So if you read various resources, there are a range of opinions. If you stare down at your study notes and your commentaries of your study Bibles, I can show you 12 more that might give an alternative perspective. 
However, if you read Matthew's account of this discourse, Matthew 24, along with Luke's gospel, Luke 21, and then you see the reference Jesus makes here in Mark 13, 14, to probably around verse 18, it appears the location of where this abomination of desolation is actually pretty local to where Jesus is sitting. Jesus says that when you see the abomination of desolation, he urges people in Judea. Did you see that there in verse, I'm getting lost in my notes here, verse, is that verse 14 or 15? Wait, which one? Is it 15? 14. Maybe. Oh, there it is, verse 14, yeah. Uh, Judea is a region that would encapsulate the southern part of Israel, uh, which would have been fairly localized to Jerusalem. And he tells them, when you see this abomination of the desolation, where you ought not to be, let the reader understand. I'm still not sure about that, that comment, though. Flee to the mountains. Leave your homes. Leave your stuff behind. May God have mercy on you. You not be pregnant in these days. And he says, don't return back. Basically, this is like being told to evacuate a place that a Category 5 hurricane's coming. Run. Escape. Get out while you can. This is Jesus referring to an awful event that will occur right there in Jerusalem. Therefore, it appears, or it seems to be, Jesus is referring back to what he began talking about in verse 2, the devastation that was about to happen to the temple in Jerusalem. Friends, this is referring to the judgment Jesus has been saying for chapters now, the cursed victory. You've made my temple, my father's house, a den of thieves. He's been teaching and rebuking and exposing, and now he's telling the disciples, this is coming. Bigger than a tornado, bigger than a hurricane, judgment is coming upon the faithless and fruitless leaders of Israel and their followers, just as Jesus foretold. Prophetically, if you read the book of Daniel, specifically, if you want to write these down, you can look them up yourself. Daniel 9, verse 27, Daniel 11, verse 31, Daniel 12, verse 11. That's 927, 1131, and 1211. The phrase, the abomination that causes desolation, is used somewhat cryptically. It kind of alternative uh, changes its phrases here and there. It refers to a person and object that would defile and profane the Jerusalem temple. The term abomination in Hebrew appears more than 100 times in the Old Testament and just a few times in the New Testament. An abomination normally indicates a great sin that God hates or detests, and it's commonly worthy of death. More often than not, throughout the Bible, abomination refers to major covenant violations with God, especially idolatry. Scholars generally agree that the first reference of these prophecies from the book of Daniel, so Daniel 9.27, is the Syrian general who outraged the Jews in 168 B.C. Uh, his name is Antichus, or Antichus Epiphanes IV, who ruled Palestine from 175 to 164 B.C. Antichus treated Israel with such violence and contempt that they rebelled against him. When he came to suppress the rebellion, his forces entered the temple, stopped the sacrifices, set up an idol or some kind of altar for Zeus, and apparently offered swine there 
as a sacrifice in the temple. This would be a classic definition of an abomination, replacing the worship of God with some other graven or created image. There was a desolation that would need to occur because the holy place had been defiled. In other words, the abomination, that which God hates, desolation, what it deserves. It appears that Mark, though, refers to this abomination that many agree in that first prophecy was fulfilled in 168 B.C. by Antiochus IV against the temple in Judea as a prefigurement, a picture, a symbol, a vivid preview of something equally outrageous and destructive that was still to occur in the future. The difficulty on the interpretation of verse 14 that lies on the abomination of desolation, well, is asking yourself the question, was this something that occurred only back in AD 70 with the destruction of the temple, or is there still a future fulfillment of it that has not occurred? And friends, this is where you get the mixed perspectives on this text. Now, historically, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, under Emperor Titus, the Romans sieged Jerusalem in AD 70, and the pagan influence and devastation was awful. They quite literally worshipped Titus. And just as it was foretold, Jesus' words came true. Now, if you look down to verses 28 to 31, look with me. I know we're in the dense waters of theological interpretation. We're going to get brought back up in a minute. Look at verses 28 to 31, and I think we see another clue as to how to understand the abomination of desolation as likely referring to what occurred in AD 70 by the words Jesus uses. Notice what he says. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near At the very gates. Now, the question then is what are these things taking place? Well, it seems to be these things that the disciples were talking about and asking Jesus of all the way back in verse 4. In other words, the lesson of the fig tree putting forth its leaves as a sign that the appointed season has arrived, likewise with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, come to pass as well. Again, look at verses 30 and 31. Truly I say to you, the men standing right in front of him, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now you have another difficult interpretive text. Who is this generation (laughs) Jesus is referring to? Again, the opinions are quite vast. Uh, There is one perspective that says this is speaking of the generation that will exist when this event happens sometime at the end of time. And then in others, a more plain reading of the text, he's speaking to these men about this destruction and speaking of a generation that will occur in the next 35 to 40 years. Jesus is speaking around A.D. 32. When is the ransack of Jerusalem? A.D. 70, within a generation. 
So within one generation, approximately 40 years from the time Jesus warned his disciples in Mark 13, give or take, AD 70 comes to pass and the destruction of the temple occurred. Friends, Jesus' words came true. It came true about what was going to happen at the temple. Now let me make one more theological nuance here to leave room for lively debate. There are Christians who would say that the abomination of desolation is still a future event to occur at the end of time. There are good arguments for that position that an awful event known as the Great Tribulation that will be so intense that it is unlike anything the world has ever seen, which is where we get the language there in verses 19 and 20. And the strongest argument for that, other than how you break up this passage, is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul talks about a man of lawlessness that will not be revealed until prior to the second coming of Christ. So listen to what Paul says. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes a seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So you're going, that's a good argument, Blake. Which one is it? Which one is it? Is the abomination something that's been fulfilled in AD 70 only? Lock shut, it's over. Is it something yet still to be revealed, still to be fulfilled in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 of the man of lawlessness? It's a great question. I don't know. I'm still learning. I'm a student of God's word just like you are. Friends, God gives us complex, complex passages in the Bible not to confuse us but to keep us humble. Uh, some of us will see things clearer than others. That's why we need each other. Praise God for Christians who've gone before us, who've stood on the shoulders of others that are brighter, more godly, and have been given light. And yet, as you look throughout church history, this particular chapter, the Olivet Discourse, is probably in the top five most debated passages about eschatology and other eschatological events. Deeply well-respected brothers who will be in glory, worshiping Jesus, will be right there with him, come on extremely different positions on this passage. So if you named an author, I could basically tell you where they're at. So, I don't know. But regardless, there are three perspectives that you could take. You could take that all or majority of Mark 13 was fulfilled in AD 70. That's known as the preterist view which means things that have already passed. You can also take the already not yet view, which means some events in Mark 13 have been fulfilled in AD 70, and some in there are still yet to be revealed. And then there's the futuristic view. Basically, everything in Mark 13 will be fulfilled at the very end of time, regardless of which perspective you are in or will be. 
we should remain humble in our disagreements. But let me offer a word of encouragement about how to interpret prophetic literature. I don't want us to be intimidated by Isaiah and Joel and Amos and Ezekiel just because the language there, even Revelation for that matter. When we interpret prophecies, we should remember the biblical reality of multiple prophetic fulfillments. There are certain prophecies that were fulfilled in the first coming of Christ. It's been fulfilled in the incarnation. It's been fulfilled. There are certain prophecies in the old connecting to the new that have been fulfilled and in many ways are being fulfilled in the new covenant age as God's spirit is being poured out on the church. And then there are prophecies still to be fulfilled only when Christ returns a second time. In other words, when you read the prophets of the Old Testament, especially Isaiah, which is like the gospel of the Old Testament in prophetic literature, we see many of these things being fulfilled, much like a huge mountain range. So let me illustrate how to understand prophetic literature. At one point in redemptive history, God makes a promise to his people. That's God's people staring at one mountain. But as time unfolds and God reveals more of his plans and purposes and fulfills them, we see another mountain and another mountain and another mountain. One generation hears the prophecy, another generation sees it fulfilled, and yet another generation sees it partly fulfilled and one day completely fulfilled. Hence why theologians call this an already but not yet inaugurated eschatology. Now, if you really want to sound smart at lunch, there it is, inaugurated eschatology. Inaugurated just means that which has begun or has initiated. And eschatology just means the study of last things, the study of the end times. And just a practical example, we've already looked at in Mark. In Mark 9, Jesus transfigures himself in this glorious depiction between him and three disciples. We see Moses and Elijah talking to each other, and Jesus manifests a preview, a picture of his glory. But there's other texts of Scripture say there's coming a day he's coming again in power and glory. But it's not going to be before three disciples on a mountain. It's going to be before the whole world. You see, Scripture will do that often. Speak of Babylon in the Old Testament. Babylon in Revelation 19 or Revelation one of those. It's not speaking of a literal Babylon. It's talking about multiple fulfillments, types and shadows. Friends, that's why I just want to encourage you. Don't be intimidated by your Bible. Just keep reading it, old and new, old and new, old and new. Keep reading them back and forth, back and forth. God helps us see this inaugurated eschatology. God's kingdom has broken in, but it has not been fully consummated over all the world to see. Now, I'm going to digress from all the dense stuff and go back to Mark 13. So, where are we at now in Mark 13? It appears Jesus is at least, at least from my best guess, is warning them that judgment's coming on the temple. It comes within that generation. Jesus' words come true. But there's more Jesus talks about in Matthew 13. It's almost as if Jesus says, you know, this day coming within a generation, it's also a preview. It's also a prefigurement. 
It's also a picture on a local scale, which one day will come on a global scale. That's why the remaining of these texts, I think, are built in what you call a chiastic literary structure. The first half, verses 1 to 18 or 1 to 23, go with 28 to 31. And then the other two passages we're going to look at now are speaking about the same event. So the rest of our verses that we're going to look at now is speaking about the final judgment, the day Christ returns, the hour or day, the parousia or parousia, or the second coming of Christ. So in verses 24 to 27, 32 to 37, we're going to see these passages in light of one another. And friends, this is where you and I come in. We weren't around in AD 70, but we're around right now in 2023, and these texts, I believe, are still yet to be fulfilled. Look at verses 24 to 27. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now look at verses 32 to 37. Basically, Jesus just spoke about this prophetic cataclysmic judgment and he's coming. Now we're going to answer the question, when? When, Jesus? You were right on the temple. What about this day? Look at verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or in the morning lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. We've got one more difficult verse to deal with, so let's just deal with it head on. In verse 32, we see another challenging reality to grasp. Admittedly, it's not easy to answer. If Jesus is truly God in human flesh, and he showed himself to have supernatural knowledge, seeing into people's hearts, forecasting events with perfection, then how could he not know the day or hour of his return? Welcome to Seminary Class 101 of Christology. While Jesus remained truly God, he was also truly and fully man. If we deny either nature of Christ, we fall into heresy. Within the hypostatic union, the divine nature and the human nature of Jesus Christ, the Father in his sovereignty had chosen not to reveal to the Son in his incarnation, while living on earth, on the exact day or hour of his return. In other words, as the Son of God, he knew the hour of his return. He and the Father are one. They love one another. He is God in flesh. But as the Son of God in his human nature, while he lived and breathed on this earth, he knew as a man, which was subject to the same experiences and limitations as we are as humans. Uh, for example, in Luke chapter 2, it says that Jesus, as a young boy, 
grew in stature and wisdom. He did obtain knowledge by study, by learning, by logic, just like you and I. One theologian explains it this way. I'm happy with his his take on it. First as mediator, Jesus was never ignorant of anything he ought to have known. As a man, he grew in knowledge. But as mediator, he knew all that he needed to know, and he lived and acted in obedience to his Father's will. Second, as mediator, Jesus had to fulfill his office as mediator. That's the one who stands in the gap between us and God. Within the limitations of a human body, if he was to represent men, so that he had to fulfill that role within the limitations of a human mind. Now, if you're going, whoa, boy, I'm still on the abomination of the desolation. Just imagine what my face looked like studying this week. If you have more questions about the two natures and the one person of Jesus Christ, if you are the more reedy type and you want to spend the next five years of your life beefing up your Christology, I would read Stephen Wellam's excellent volume, God the Son Incarnate. God the Son Incarnate. If you're going, yeah, no, Pastor, never going to read that. Well, I would commend the little booklet we have in the lobby by Ligonier Ministries, The Word Became Flesh. It deals with more of the affirmation and denial, scripture references, those sort of things. Feel free to pick one up when you head out today. All right, friends, as we stare at these final passages of the Lord's return, what is it that Jesus instructs us on how to live our lives in light of the end? As followers of the world's only Savior, what is required of us to endure to the end? I want to offer two words of encouragement derived from Mark 13. One of these will have some subpoints, but I'll try to slow it down for you. Encouragement number one, the study of eschatology. Again, that just big fancy word just means the study of last things or end times, okay? Just don't be intimidated by it. Study of last things. The study of eschatology must shape affect, and transform the way we live now. The study of eschatology, the study of last things, must shape, affect, and transform the way we live now. In other words, this is where I will pull out my gloves and punch with people who come back and they fight over these texts. If your eschatological beliefs leave you and I lazy, Afraid, lagging in evangelism, or living in unrepentant sin, then our eschatology is defective. Because when you and I read the New Testament, anytime it is speaking of last things, it is speaking about wartime living, holy living, evangelistic living, the judgment day is on the forefront of your mind. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation is in your heart, and you're living as if you believe Jesus is coming back. Any view of eschatology, dispensational premillennialism, historic premillennialism, amillennialism, postmillennialism, preterism, the already not yet, or futuristic. Oh, it goes vast and beyond more than you would even realize. Friends, if your eschatology is not transforming the way we live now, it's defective and useless. 
You can stare at charts all day long. You can stare at the news and, ooh, is that a sign? Is that a wonder? Is this the earthquake? Is this and that? Get your mind in the book. Listen to Jesus. Turn off the tube and know that at any time God desires to have that appointed time come to fruition, I promise you, you'll know. He's coming back loud, audibly, physically, and the whole world will see. And for Christians, we marvel and wonder and long for that day. So friends, regardless of your views and all these different things, a singular antichrist or many that have come, the great tribulation or the millennium, regardless, the same command is called for every Christian of every generation. We must be ready. Even though it might seem like a long time, God's timetable is very different than ours. So I sat around with the family last night and I said, just to prep you for tomorrow's sermon. A lot of stuff you're not going to understand, but one thing I want you to understand. Well, Brother Blake, or Dad, or Pastor, or hey dude, whatever you call me, it's been 2,000 years. Jesus said he was going to return. Where is he? When's it going to happen? 2 Peter 3, verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Friends, what might feel like a really long time for us is a blink in heaven. Now think about it. If we took this figurative language, literal, if Jesus has been gone from this earth for 2,000, a little over 2,000 years, according to 2 Peter 3, 8, how long has he been gone from heaven's perspective? Two days. So friends, the delay for us is not really a delay for him. He's always on time. And he's patient, not willing that any perish, but all come to repentance. So what is our overall charge then? Verse 33, Jesus says, be on guard, stay awake. As a, a guest preacher used to come to our chapel in high school, I went to a private Christian school, Kenny Grant used to come, and he was kind of always known as the guy that would keep you awake. And when he saw some sleepers in chapel, you know, like this, he'd go, young people, wake up. And he would do it right next to someone's ear. I mean, like, whoa, are we in algebra? I mean, it would just, it would freak him out. But I can tell you, when Kenny Grant would show up to preach, you stayed awake. Jesus is saying the same thing. As you think about the Lord's return, stay awake. Verse 35, stay awake. Verse 37, stay awake. So how do we do that? Let me give you a few practical suggestions. Number one, study your Bibles on the second coming of Christ. Study your Bibles on the second coming of Christ. You will find over and over again the same admonition. Stay awake. Stay alert. Eager, wait for it. Long for it. Pray for it. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We pray that at the Lord's Supper every month because that's what the apostles have done. That's what every Christian's done since Jesus resurrected from the dead. Come quickly, Lord. Come. You can read the Olivet Discourse again. Matthew's Gospel, Mark's Gospel, Luke's. You can read 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, as Matt read earlier. You can read 1 Corinthians 15. You could also read 2 Peter chapter 3. 
And you can read especially the final chapters of Revelation. So that's the Olivet Discourse, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, 1 Corinthians 15, 2 Peter 3, and the final chapters of Revelation. Friends, the more you and I study about the Lord's return and the hope it brings us, it will tend to stay on the forefront of our minds. Friends, otherwise, if we don't, we can go long stretches in our lives without ever thinking about it one time. Brothers and sisters, let's just have a little honest confession time between you and the Lord. How often do you think about the Lord's return? In the midst of the hustle and bustle, stress and duress, do you find yourself praying, come, Lord, quickly, come? Number two, practical application, regularly gather with the church to be reminded of the Lord's return. Regularly gather with the church to be reminded of the Lord's return. You know these texts, but sometimes we gloss over them. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Or consider the importance of partaking of the Lord's Supper regularly with the church you're a member of. As we plan on doing tonight at 5 p.m., Lord willing. Listen to 1 Corinthians 11, and maybe you'll hear it differently tonight at the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11, 24 to 26. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, as Christians, that's why we need the local church. That's why we need to sit regularly under the preaching of God's word. That's why we need to regularly assemble together to partake of the Lord's Supper together. That's why we need the fellowship and accountability of spirit-filled believers who love us. Why? Because we need to be stirred up. We need to be woken up. We need to be reminded and stay alert that Christ loves us. Christ is keeping us, and Christ is going to return for us. Friends, that's why we need to pray for one another. Because when the going gets tough, when, when your faith is being put on trial, friends, we need the prayers of God's people because God's Spirit answers those prayers and strengthens us with what we need. Friends, did you realize many of the things that Mark 13 talked about are applicable to Christians today all around the world? Jesus mentioned, for example, facing false prophets and false messiahs. That means we all need to be growing in spiritual discernment to know truth from error, godly leaders from ungodly leaders, sound doctrine from spiritual junk food, a true church versus a toxic church. Friends, we can't fight spiritual battles if we don't know how to wield the sword of the Spirit. Stay in the book and surround yourself with other believers who know it better than we do. Jesus also mentions facing persecution from governments, religious entities like synagogues, and even families. Friends, if we're going to follow Jesus together, there's going to be examples and stories in our own congregation of people suffering immensely in their cost of following Jesus. When I was at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, it was not uncommon to see someone baptized who told us before they were baptized, my family's about to disown me. They came from a Hindu family or a Muslim family 
or we literally couldn't share their name in the congregational meeting because if it was recorded, they could have a death sentence when they got back home to visit their parents. Friends, this is not some far-reaching thing. This is the world we live in, and it's been like this from the very beginning. Friends, that's why verse 11 is a wonderful promise. Don't be anxious. Don't be afraid. God's Spirit will help you in the hour you need it. Friends, my last encouragement comes from this. Number two, the promised day of the Lord's return may be unknown to us, but is certain to happen. The promise of the Lord's return, the promised day of the Lord's return, may be unknown to us, but is certain to happen. So if you're not a Christian here this morning, this is something you need to think a lot about. We've been speaking a lot about the Lord's return as the hope of believers. But the Lord's return is a scary and frightening thing if you don't trust in him now. There are no second chances after this life's over. The hourglass will be turned over and time will be up. Friends, one day every eye will see him. He will return visibly, audibly, and globally for the whole world to see. Listen, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ today, surrender your life to him. Entrust your life to him. Trust that he loves you so much that he died on the cross in your place, taking on God's wrath in your place, bearing the penalty and the enmity that we deserve, and he has brought us peace through the wounds of his body on that cross. And three days later, God raised him from the dead, demonstrating to this hateful and fallen world that Jesus really is God's son. He is our only savior. He is our only hope. And there are no other saviors that will ever replace him. Friends, if you think, as I've witnessed to so many people that give me this answer, especially young people under 20, I'll never forget a guy um, was delivering my pizza to my apartment back when Julie and I were first married. And as I'm paying for the meal, I got in a gospel conversation with him. And I said, Billy, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? You know you're going to die. He said, well, yeah, I know I'm going to die. And yeah, I know religion is good for me, but I'll get to that later in life. I said, Billy, you may not get home today. Friend, if that's your attitude, I can get right with Jesus later. Let me, let me give you a stern warning now. It is better to live a short life on earth and depart and be with Christ forever than to live a long life on earth and hear Christ say to you, depart from me, I never knew you. Friends, true living is knowing the one who gives life. That's in Jesus Christ and in him alone. Friend, put your hope in the one who is eternally rich in heaven, who became poor for our sake. The one who took on human flesh, humbled himself so that we, in exchange for our sin, might be given his righteousness and that we might have hope in the one who overcame the grave, who atoned for sin and has promised to return for his people. Dear Christian, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. How does the second return of Christ have any effect on our life Monday through Saturday? Let me remind you. 
Suffering is expected in this life, but it's temporary. It will one day end. Sin, evil, and injustice will one day be finally judged by the righteous one, Jesus Christ. History is not random chance. History is ultimately his story unfolding throughout the centuries, and one day the book will be closed and the story will be complete. Friends, that means the future and all of it that it entails is in God's safe hands. Every war, every rumor of war, every earthquake, every famine, every form of persecution, every rise and fall of phony and false preachers, every rise and fall of false and toxic churches, none of it catches our God by surprise. Brothers and sisters, the promise of the Lord's return, when we read the New Testament and we get to the very end of the book of Revelation, guess what? We know how it ends. Jesus wins. Hallelujah. We're not a part of a losing team. That always is so depressing when we are in sports. But if you're on King Jesus's team, we already know how it's going to be won. Jesus said he would die and rise again, and he did. Jesus said he would return on the clouds of heaven and be united with his people forever, and that day is coming. Jesus said he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Friends, right now the gospel is advancing all around the world. People are being brought from death to life. Friends, that's why the promise is there. One day he's going to send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds from all over the globe. And we're going to be surrounded as one big family around King Jesus, enjoying our Savior forever. Isn't that going to be glorious? Brothers and sisters, Our salvation is secure right now, and it will be secure on the last day. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. No matter natural disasters, threats of war, uncertainty of the future can separate us from his love. You know what the certainty of our Lord's return does for us? We may not know the exact day or hour of his return, but we do know he will hold on to us this day, all the way to that day. The doctrine of election is mentioned multiple times in this passage. Three times the words elect or the Lord's elect is used. Why does that matter on a passage that is dense, complex, and fierce, as Mark 13? Why is it important that Jesus specifically uses the word elect about his people? How does the doctrine of election give us encouragement in times of suffering? How does the doctrine of election give us comfort in times of uncertainty in our life? Well, there's first a warning. Look at verse 13. Mark 13, 13. Jesus said, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Who are those who will endure to the end? How do you know if you're one of the elect? Endurance in the faith does not cause our election. Endurance in the faith demonstrates that we are of God's elect. For those who do not endure to the end, it will reveal they were never Christ to begin with. 
In his great mercy, he sustains in faith all those he gives the gift of faith to. In other words, the work he first begins, he promises to complete. Friends, how does the Lord's promise return then? How does that give you and I hope and comfort and joy right now? Friends, this whole passage is about salvation. It's not about being caught up in charts and signs and wonders. It's about sovereign grace. In election, before the foundation of the earth, God chose to show his mercy to some and make them his own. In the atonement, God purchases our redemption in Christ. Through the outward call of the gospel, God puts people in our lives to tell us the gospel and he draws us to himself. In regeneration, God brings us from death to life and makes us alive in Christ. In conversion, we're enabled by God's grace to repent and believe. In justification, God declares guilty sinners like us as righteous in his eyes. Adoption, God receives us and permanently places us in his family. In sanctification, God purifies us and makes us more like Jesus. In perseverance, God preserves our faith so that we're enabled to endure to the end. And in glorification, God completes and consummates what he begins. What in eternity past he chose to do, he will complete and make a wretch his bride for his son. Brothers and sisters, in saving ourselves, we will lose ourselves. But if Jesus is saving us, we will have life in his name. So as we wait on the Lord's return, are you eagerly longing for it? Are you staying alert? Are you remaining awake? Are you doing the Lord's work wherever he's called you right now? If you're trusting in Christ today, we wait, knowing that it is well with our soul. Let's pray. Father, what more can we say? Till you return or you call us home, it's in the love and the power of Christ we stand. Father, would you cause each one of us to be stirred up, to be awake, to be alert, to be eagerly longing for your return and be busy with your work wherever you've called us? Lord, we pray that right now that you would cause your spirit in us to rejoice knowing that regardless of what may happen in our life, whatever our lot, you have taught us to say it is well with our soul. It is well with our soul because the work you first begin, you promise to complete. And Lord, we long for that day. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.